You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D, the podcast that explores the power of inclusion and why disability is an important part of the workplace diversity and inclusion conversation. Produced by the Ontario Disability Employment Network, with your hosts, Jeanette Campbell and Dean Askin. Hello there. This episode's a check-in. A check-in on hidden mobility disabilities in this country and the Hidden Mobility Disabilities Project, or the HMD Project for short. Now, HMDs are generally the inability to walk any great distance or stand for a long time. And the HMD Project has been investigating accessibility as it relates to hidden mobility disabilities. Hi, I'm Dean Askin, and welcome to this follow-up episode of You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D. Hello and welcome to the show from me. I'm Jeanette Campbell. For the past year, the HMD project has been exploring possible changes to federal accessibility standards needed to address HMDs. This project's been spearheaded by the Hidden Mobility Disability Alliance and funded by Accessibility Standards Canada. Now, some full disclosure here, the Ontario Disability Employment Network has been the HMDA's primary partner on the HMD project. We've been coordinating and promoting project participation by individuals and organizations in a national survey and focus groups. And it's been just over a year since we first talked with our guest. And we wanted to find out what Dr. Dorothy Riddle has been finding out from that national survey and focus group since our original conversation in June of 2022. Now, if you haven't listened to that episode, episode six, by the way, have a listen. It was an insightful conversation about an angle of disability inclusion that's not obvious, is often overlooked, and is one that creates some significant obstacles to inclusion. And Dean, I think we and our listeners are in for some more really insightful points in this episode. So joining us once again from the Sunshine Coast of BC, where she's lived for over 30 years, is the Chief Facilitator of the HMD Project, Dr. Dorothy Riddle. Dorothy is a certified management consultant with a doctorate in clinical psychology and a doctoral minor in statistics and research methodology. She's been a social justice advocate most of her professional life, including advocating for better accessibility for people who live with mobility issues. And also joining us for this episode from Hamilton, Ontario is Ingrid Mushta. Ingrid is ODIN's Director of Special Projects and Innovation. She's been coordinating and promoting participation in the National HMD Project Survey and focus groups that have been going on for the past year and that are soon wrapping up. So Dorothy and Ingrid, welcome to this HMD follow-up episode of You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D. Thank you, Jeanette. Thank you. So Dorothy, I'd like to start with you out there in BC. Is this project still about the accessibility of federal public services, or has it evolved into something much broader about community accessibility? Well, that's an interesting question, Jeanette. Um, From a funding perspective, our focus is on uh, the design and delivery of federal programs and services. But as we've talked with people, uh, people have come on board asking for presentations. Uh, For example, uh, accessibility staff in Ottawa and Toronto 
Vancouver and Waterloo have all asked for presentations. Uh, we've had the Canadian Arthritis Patient Alliance and the Disability Foundation, uh, an initiative with immigrants, uh, an initiative with the Nature Conservancy. So the interest itself has spread broader, but our our commitment, our responsibility is to federal service delivery. I'm curious, Dorothy, with all the research that's that's been done in all of both focus groups and surveys, what have you been learning from all that research that, you know, maybe you didn't think you were going to find out when you started? I mean, have there been some surprises along the way? Well, I think uh, the first rather gratifying surprise was that we were able to verify through national survey data that 13% of Canadian adults struggle with limited mobility, which is, I think, a much higher percent than people thought. Uh, people who are using wheeled devices, that's uh, a little under 2% of the population. So this is really a, a widespread issue. And the other thing is uh, that we hadn't really given much attention to was the importance of pre-planning. You know, if you're going to go out, trying to figure out how far you're going to have to walk, you know, you know how you're going to manage in the external environment. Uh, and many people said in focus groups that if if they thought they were going to have to walk too far, they just wouldn't go uh, to wherever it was that they needed to go. So that importance of, of pre-planning uh, has been critical, and we've made a recommendation to uh, the Canadian Standards Association to actually add a requirement uh, to, on websites to give the information that's necessary for that pre-planning. It's it's really interesting, and I hope that I can jump in here just to add to yeah, what Dorothy please, is commenting. You know, for me, as I was analyzing some of the data that Dorothy is utilizing, uh, that concept of mobility fluctuation, your capacity fluctuates from um, your current state to where you to your future state, and when we talk about future state, we're not talking about months or weeks we're talking about hours possibly yeah mm -hmm. well That's and i guess point. that that really speaks to this to dorothy your point around that importance of pre-planning and realizing that people are sometimes self-selecting out of of going out or or accessing something because of of that distance and so ingrid interesting that future state you know, when we think about that, we think, you know, a year from now or something, but we could be talking about an hour from now. Mm -hmm. And also really great that, um, you know, as I love how you put it, Dorothy, the, the gratifying surprise that you had, uh, you're able to, to, to look at the information and the research and find out that 13% of Canadian adults are struggling with this. And, and so that really, the power behind a number like that is is really hopefully gonna make the the impact of this project that much, that much stronger. And so I, a question I maybe, I'll start with Ingrid and then, and then Dorothy jump into this, but I'm wondering Ingrid, because you've been sort of um, at the front end of this with trying to to encourage participation has as one of your roles 
levels, have you been getting the participation that you'd hoped for? That's an interesting question. And, you know, I think that we had hoped for a number of Canadians to see this as something that they could get behind. But I think that a bit of education um, or the lack of awareness from the Canadian public to how much HMD impacts all has resulted in maybe not as many people participating as we would have liked. Um, I know that we sometimes feel like people are oversaturated with requests, but in that number that Dorothy just put, 13% of Canadians are impacted. And HMD doesn't impact just the person, it impacts their family, it impacts their community. And so if there is anything that comes out of the, the data and the report, it's my hope that more Canadians would want to participate in future developments of this project because they will see how it how they can be themselves impacted by hidden mobility disabilities. Because we can all land into this um, into this demographic from uh, an accident, uh, just an episodic disability. And I don't know if Dorothy wants to speak to that as well, that, you know, we can all experience hidden mobility disabilities. Well, yes. yeah, Dorothy, I'm wondering for you, did you did you feel like you were getting the participation you'd hoped for? In our previous podcast, we were we were all discussing some pretty aspirational numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, how how do you feel about the participation? Um, I feel very good about it. We we the survey data was very important. Uh, and we've had uh, over 2,600 uh, participants across Canada take the survey, which is statistically you know, very reliable. So I think the participation has been good. I'd just like to add one thing to what Ingrid was saying, and that is one of the barriers in trying to do this kind of research is that people don't see a limit on their mobility as a disability often. They see it as my problem. I haven't exercised enough. I'm not eating right. You know, I'm not getting enough sleep. That's why I'm having trouble walking long distances. And so part of the part of the outreach to me that's critical to continue is to get people to recognize that if they are having difficulty walking more than what we found was 15 meters uh, or uh, one and a half school buses, if they're having trouble walking that far, uh, that it's not their problem. It's the interaction between their limitation and the way in which the external environment has been designed. I want to, I want to build on this a, a, a little bit. And, and ask, you know, I mean, the world's come out of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, more or less. Um, how do you think the pandemic affected the research? I mean, do you think some of the findings and participation might have been different if there hadn't been the pandemic? I mean, you know, we were in a situation where, you know, it was top of mind for people. You had to stand in line for just about everything at stores or, you know, and the transit operations were reduced. People had to stand six feet apart. And everybody was working remotely and online and maybe people were, you know, just tired of doing online interactions. I mean, what do you think? Well, to me, there, 
there are two consequences. One is the the way in which uh, focus groups were run needed to be online rather than in person. But to me, actually, the the ironically, the most important uh, impact was that the the issue of social isolation became very, very clear. Now, that is one restriction in social participation and social isolation is one of the key issues that persons with limited mobility have to deal with. But in the pandemic, uh, much more of, of the population experienced social isolation. And so there began to be research on the impact of social isolation. So it wasn't directly on limited mobility, but it was on a very important correlate of limited mobility. And, and that's interesting. You know, if I can just augment a thought or add to it is that through the focus group analyzing that information, we discovered that many of the people who participated noted that hidden mobility disabilities can sometimes make them seem invisible to our society because of that concept of social isolation, because you don't want to uh, go out on your own and potentially be in a situation where you can't be helped or where you get yourself into trouble as many participants noted. So there is a strong correlation or a strong relationship in here between hidden mobility disabilities, planning for your date and social isolation. That, yeah, I, that's just a fascinating piece to come out of that and and that really looking at the impact of, of social isolation, as you're saying, and how how those two themes have managed to come together somewhat in this. And I'm, and, you know, also Dorothy, I'm really thinking about what, what you said earlier around one of the, one of the challenges is that people don't necessarily see themselves or identify as, you know, I have a disability. They're not, they're not identifying with, oh, I have a hidden mobility disability or limited mobility issue, but instead they're sort of blame that, that self blame, that responsibility, you know, this, I'm not exercising enough. I, I didn't eat right. So I don't have energy or I didn't sleep enough. And so that, that in itself, I think is really quite interesting. And I'm wondering, were there other, were there other challenging parts of this project that um, that you came across, or what's been the most challenging part of the project so far? Well, from the project perspective, I would say the most challenging has been trying to get a Canadian Standards Association to take limited mobility seriously. We we have been giving input as to changes needed in accessibility standards. Um, and the response we get back is either not interested or we'll take it under under consideration and take a look. You know, when we come back to these standards in five years, we'll we'll think about this. Uh, and to me, that when you think about thirteen percent of the population uh, being effective, that's really irresponsible. Yeah. The, I would like to talk a little bit more about the social consequences of social isolation. Sure, you know. please. Yeah. There's, there's a couple of things that um, that have come up. One is the loss of serendipitous encounters. Mm -hmm. In other words, someone like myself 
if I interact with somebody in person, it's usually because it's planned ahead of time. Somebody that I, I know by name or I, I know personally. I, I'm not just walking around the community and randomly running into people. Even though I now walk with a cane, I get a lot of pressure to walk further than I can safely. Um, I'm overly dependent on others to act for my for me, like to get something from a store where I know that I can't possibly walk that far within the store. Uh, and then constantly having to self-advocate to say, I'm sorry, that's too far. I, you know, I, I can't walk that far. It's people who haven't had to deal with that kind of pressure may not recognize how draining it is, how difficult it is. That's... Well, oh, sorry, Ingrid. I was just going to say, you know, Dorothy, you, you talked about those, the social consequence and, and that loss of that serendipitous encounters. And so were you also saying this lens, this really lends to the social isolation piece and that, you know, you even within your community, you, you don't have those unplanned, random, beautiful, spontaneous moments? Yes. Yes, exactly. Now, fortunately for me, I have a partner who walks several hours a day and who will come back and share with me <laughs> those, <laughs> those encounters. But it's not quite the same. Yeah. And Ingrid, you you were going to say something. Yeah, you know, I was going to add that the focused group data tells us that there's a lot people who have or who experience HMD live with a lot of pressures um, the pressure to keep up uh, when they're out uh, walking, um, a, a self-imposed pressure to somewhat solve um, the situations that they find themselves in, um, that whole concept of pressure not to inconvenience others. And and if you and and I think that there's a a theme that hasn't been spoken in here as well, but there is a pressure that if you're a young person to almost uh, hide or um, put pressure on yourself. So if you're a young parent to a child and you experience hidden mobility disabilities, you might want to push yourself because you want to keep up with other parents, but then you get yourself into trouble. That, that's a really interesting point, Ingrid, because I'd, I'd like to just expand it a bit. Uh, there's an assumption that I've run into a lot that limited mobility is just a matter of aging and oh it's just because you're older uh, but in fact we found that people as young as 15 that's the youngest we've sampled uh, have uh, limited mobility issues and as you said earlier anyone can break a leg <laughs> you know mm -hmm. and and have that kind of issue for a while on a temporary basis uh, so we need to recognize it for the issue that it is on its own and not just write it off to something else like aging. Ingrid, you were, you were talking about some of the things that came out of the focus groups. And I, I want to pick up on that a little bit. I, I guess focus groups, sometimes they can sort of be like that famous movie line from Forrest Gump, kind of like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. I mean, Every focus group can be different in terms of people's experiences and responses to questions, I guess. But 
Has that been the case? Was was there a lot of differences in you know responses and and and, and experiences between focus groups, or or have there been some common threads throughout every focus group? I'll answer first, and then maybe Dorothy can uh, expand as well. You know, I think the word significant themes, you know, the theme of having that pressure to prepare yourself as you're going out, uh, the theme of not realizing that you do live with hidden mobility disabilities until you've seen the survey, answer the questions, and then realize, wait a second, I, I could. There is language now that represents what I'm experiencing and living. And then the, the theme of feeling that this was an opportunity for people to have an open and safe space where they could share the concerns and the frustrations that they have been encountering with the inaccessible environments, even the environments that are considered to be quote unquote accessible. Once people arrive to the building, they find them to be inaccessible to them. And so I don't know if Dorothy wants to pick up on a couple of those um, themes that were represented through the data. The one comment that I would like to add, it, it comes from the survey because I, I wasn't doing the focus groups, but I was looking at the survey data and people had an opportunity at the end to make a comment if they, if they wished. And a number of people, quite a few people commented to say, Thank you for sh for shedding light on this issue. Thank you for paying attention to this. Thank you. I, I've struggled with this for so long and haven't known how to think about it. Uh, it was it was amazing to me to get that kind of response just from taking a survey. Yeah, and if can I just you know just one more thing to add to that is I think that we are not as communities and societies we're not. Um, providing enough education about limited and hidden mobility disabilities at an early age. And so if we were to start from promoting this kind of language and this kind of awareness early on in educational systems, I'm, I'm speaking about elementary schools, people may have a better concept of what hidden mobility disabilities are as they are growing up. It it, it sounds like, Dorothy, some of the 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 continuity of comments is one of those things where you you might you might be thinking gee i wasn't expecting that to happen or to find out that you know you you've you sort of touched on some of the things but i'm curious what are some of the really most interesting early findings from the focus groups and surveys that you've learned that you can share with us what what really really sticks out for you um well, I, I've mentioned the the fact that it's 13% of the population, which really was the first thing that stuck out to me. The importance of giving people information to pre-plan. Uh, one of the things that it's not within our mandate to address, but if you think about communities where there are people, 13% of the adults in that community have limited mobility and will not be able to go out on their own the way society is structured right now, the way the built environment is structured right now, will not be able to go out on their own and get things for themselves, you know, participate actively in community events, that kind of thing. Um, we need to be thinking as, as communities about how we are inclusive uh, in in the way of 
making it possible for persons with limited mobilities to participate and to create resources that persons with limited mobility can draw on. I'll, I'll give you a practical example. I have a transit chair, which uh, I, which is a lightweight chair that someone can push me in. You see ones like it in hospitals sometimes. Um, and if I need to go to an appointment, like a medical appointment, where there's going to be a long hallway, I'm not going to be able to walk there. Uh, my partner uh, will come with me and will push me in that. But let's say that my partner is away, is away, or my, my partner has other things to do. How do I get pushed? Where do I where do I turn for that kind of help? So that's what I'm talking about. I'm wondering if we can sort of put a number to that 13%. I mean, people, it's, it's always helps paint, paint a, 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 an easier picture with a, with a number. I mean, if it's 13% of the population now that has an HMD, and apparently That's as of June 16th, the new population of Canada is 40 million people. So are we talking about somewhere around 5.2 million people who have? Yes, yes. That's a lot. Yes, it is a lot. That's a solid number. Yeah. Yes. And when you think that there are many of those who simply do not go out because they're afraid they'll get into a situation where they've walked too far and they're immobilized by pain, they can't get anywhere. So they stay home. Yeah. And, it's, you know, Dean, thanks for turning the percentage into a into a real number. Um, I actually find that really helpful. Um, and, you know, Dorothy, building on, on what you're saying, if we're talking about 5 million people across the country that are that are not engaging, not able to engage because of the, because of the design of the environment around them, um, you know, I think you're you're emphasizing why this project is is so important. Um, but you know, can can you talk about maybe just exactly why this project and all of the findings in your research is going to be so important? Well, the our funder is Accessibility Standards Canada, and so our hope is, uh, and this may or may not be realistic, that. Accessibility Standards Canada funded us for a reason, that they actually want to know the results of our research and they actually want to act on them. So because people with limited mobility in general are fine in their home environments, they can arrange their homes so that you know it all works for them. It's when they step outside the door and they interact with the ex external built environment uh, that they run into trouble. So I don't know if that's just an aspirational hope or if that's a realistic hope that there will be changes to our accessibility standards and that they will be enforced. Well, and I think that that really does speak to why this project and and your, your findings are going to be so important because you're right, Accessibility Standards Canada is asking and has engaged with you to find this information out. So, you know, to what end and what next when you, when you provide this. And I like what you said earlier about, you know, 
you're not doing this so that so that they can just take it into take it under consideration or you know will refer to it and and that you know you made a really meaningful statement and saying it at when we're talking about five million people it's irresponsible to not act on on the recommendations and and findings um and one of the things that we talked about when we were doing this original interview uh, last year was also about the lack of awareness. And I know you've been touching on this and Ingrid, you have as well, the lack of awareness about hidden mobility disability. Um, what, what is the, what have your findings sort of revealed about, about that fact that there is this lack of awareness? What I have found, and I've been, I feel very fortunate in, uh, having been invited to give lots of presentations on this. Usually when I give one presentation, there's at least somebody in that group that then invites me on to another group. And in general, the response uh, has been very positive. When you think about it, there's not the changes required are not that great. Put the benches back, you know, <laughs> in the yeah. hallways. It, it, it's... It doesn't cost a lot of money. You don't have to redo the building. You just have to make it possible for people to sit and rest every 15 meters. Yeah, yeah I was I was going to talk about that. You know, it was it was clear from the focus groups that more opportunities for stop and rest are very easy and actionable things that anyone who serves the public could be doing in their built environments. And then the other one that was very easy and actionable for anyone here in, in this podcast who serves the public is to incorporate just information on your built environment, not just the outside, but also the inside, you know, map out what the building looks like. Where are this, the locations for sitting arrangement? Uh, if there is an incline to the, you know, to the building, getting to the building, note that so that the person can, um, going back to that concept of planning your, your outings, give opportunity for people to be aware give empower people who have hidden mobility disabilities with information. And I would add to that, that's excellent, Ingrid. Uh, I would add that if you have spaces like long corridors that people may, may need to maneuver through, provide mobility aids and publicize the fact that you have mobility aids for people. It can be chain, uh, cane cha uh, chairs, seats, you know, those canes that there's a little seat that opens out that you can sit right. rest. Uh, or you have uh, the transit chairs that uh, a companion can push or anything like that to make it easy for people to maneuver through the building. Or what to me would be even more wonderful is to have staff that would be helpful. For example, I've driven into an underground parking uh, spot uh, and there've been a couple of those metal uh, chairs that can be pushed. But if I don't have someone with me that can push me, then that doesn't help. But if there was an, a number that I could call where a staff person would come down and push me, 
that would be fantastic. You know, Dorothy, I had a, an opportunity to, to sit on one of your recent presentations, and uh, I was struck by a, a couple a couple of things. You know, I, when you you had mentioned the social isolation aspect, you know, of hidden mobility disabilities and but but the thing that during that presentation when i was listening the thing that really struck me was you started using the terms hidden mobility disabilities and limited mobility disabilities kind of interchangeably about the same thing what prompted the shift in in language or terminology well it was actually feedback from people who said that uh limited mobility was easier to understand it's like with hidden mobility disability, which is what we started out with, they had to learn a new language. They had to understand what the concept was. But that if someone said limited mobility, they immediately got a picture in their mind of someone who couldn't walk very far. And so it was easier for them to grab a hold of the ideas. So that's why we've, whereas the, the project itself is called a project on HMD, hidden mobility disabilities, we started using the term limited mobility. And that makes a lot of sense as well, um, because I, I agree it would become hopefully much easier for people to sort of pause and identify the, the limited mobility and maybe help them to participate even more in the conversation. Um, and you know what I'm what I'm wondering, Dorothy, is once the, the research ends, what's the next step in all of this? Well, our hope is that limited mobility will actually become part of accessibility standards. This whole initiative, you know, the, the funding initiative, is towards the goal of making Canada barrier-free. And the barrier of distance to be walked is one that has not been addressed before in accessibility standards. So our hope is that that, that will happen, and also that people will continue to reach out to uh, the Hidden Mobility Disability Alliance for information. You know, we'll, uh, people who haven't thought about this before will come across our website and start thinking about it. Uh, but we don't really actually have much control over what happens when the research ends. I, I, I'm glad you, you mentioned you know, this is all in, in the goal to, to make Canada barrier free, because that's what I wanted to, to ask you about. I mean, you know, the Accessible Canada Act is out there and that's that landmark piece of federal Canadian legislation now that's setting out to make this country barrier free by 2040. But I'm wondering, Dorothy, you know, in your opinion, how, you know, how realistic is that 2040 accessibility target with all the things, you know, you've experienced with the research, with, you know, with, with findings and the whole process of getting everything together, you know, and everybody, and, and as you said, the CSA you know, responses that you've had from the CSA, how realistic do you think that, that 2040 goal is? Uh, that's a great question. It, it could be realistic, but the thing that has bothered me from the very beginning is that there's no fed federal measurement of the barriers that exist. That, that's one of the first things that we went to was we asked the federal government about you know, the, the data, who had what regulations already in place, who had uh, 
how were they going to know that Canada was barrier free? And I still don't know the answer to that. I still have not received a good answer. They, there is under the act, under the Accessible Canada Act, there was a requirement to create uh, accessibility plans. And a lot of our work last fall was uh, to help people put limited mobility into their accessibility plans. But the results, the, the plans that resulted were very, very general. Uh, as a statistician, <laughs> as someone who's done uh, program evaluation research, I wouldn't be able to measure whether or not uh, the goal of barrier-free had been met from the way in which those plans were designed. And there are a couple of federal agencies that have gone a little bit further than that, uh, which we've been pleased to see, but I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I really, you cannot reach a goal unless you have a way to measure where you're starting from and the progress that you're making. And I don't, I'm unaware that the government has that and I would be happy to be proven wrong. You know, I'm thinking like uh, the, the joke that used to be, you know, when a teacher was marking your paper, it's like when the, the joke of the teachers in high school, when they say, oh, I'm just going to throw the papers down the stairs and, and whichever <laughs> one goes the farthest gets the highest mark kind of thing. So mm -hmm. it, it sounds kind of like that's the scenario we're talking about here. Well, the thing that I have found disheartening is that I've raised this issue. I've asked this question and I haven't gotten a response that that is disheartening and and i can understand how frustrating that would be especially because you know it's encouraging dorothy to hear you say that that the target of 2040 is it could be very realistic mm -hmm. um it should be re very realistic it, it should be 2030 or it should be 2025 even like these you're you know you're not talking about massive major overhauls of community planning and city planning here um but but disappointing that without those and 100 percent agree without the benchmarks in place how do you how do you measure your progress how do you how do you even know where you need to start um so that's you know so i mean i think for me my hope is that is that the the information and the 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 data that you're able to synthesize and provide back to the government is going to really help them and hopefully um, move them you know much much quicker along along the lines of this and i so i'm i'm wondering we always sort of wrap up our podcast with this with this question, and I think there's going to be something here. So I'm wondering, and Ingrid, you as well, but Dorothy, have we have we covered all of the essentials in this conversation, or is there anything else that you think is important to mention? I think the the one other thing I've mentioned it, but I would like to underscore it is that in terms of limited mobility, the changes that are needed are to the built environment, to the assumption of the structure of the built environment. And the project has made specific recommendations, uh, but in order to actually bring about change, 
it's got to it's got to start sooner than five years from now, which is what people are talking about. There needs to be a sense of urgency about you know if we really want to get uh, Canada to be barrier free. First of all, we have to have those measurables. We have to know uh, what our what our targets are that we that we're going to have to to hit at the end of the first year, the second year, the third year, that kind of thing. Um, and we have to have a standards organization that is responsive to rapid modification of standards, not eventual modification of accessibility standards. And if I can just add, you know, Dorothy's um, focusing on on the accessibility in the built environment, and I I could add that we also have to have an attitudinal change mm -hmm. from our society to limit limited mobility disability, hidden mobility disabilities, because it impacts a person's full participation in society. You know, through the data, things like where you choose to live can be impacted by hidden mobility disabilities if you're a person that cannot go upstairs, a set of stairs. So for example, if a building is lower than three floors, I believe it's if it's three floors is the the, the height of that building, you don't have to have a, a, an elevator. Mm -hmm. But that now impacts on a person's ability to choose that building as their place of residence if they happen to experience hidden mobility disabilities or the impact that, you know, a person's perception and success, if you cannot achieve as much as others who do not experience limited mobility disabilities. So, or, or, or as simple as an emergency, a medical emergency, if you cannot walk or get yourself to a, 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 a clinic, what is the impact of that person? So I think attitudinal changes within our society are very, very important to ensure that we are providing accessibility to all. I would agree. And I would add, uh, this was mentioned briefly earlier, but limited mobility doesn't just affect the person who has limited mobility. It affects the people around them. My partner spends a lot of energy helping me be able to do things. So it's not just my life that is affected. Well, and I think, you know, Dorothy, that's that point. And so, you know, I was right. There was other things that we always have something else to add. And I'm glad for that because, you know, you've really opened up and hopefully some future dialogues. And for people who are listening, they're thinking about this again, you know, that the, the changes that are needed are, are to the built environment, but, but to think about even what, what limited mobility is, um, why these changes it's it's for everybody um and you know when you think about your partners and you think about your kids and things like that as well it's like your your ability to go out and interact and your ability to go out and enjoy your community and and or your ability to go out and get your your basic essentials or like ingrid said you know that um this this can dictate where where you live where you choose to live where you you know and we've said what activities you're going to engage in and things and and so you know i'm glad that we're we're it, it feels like there's a lot um that's that's going to be there to think about when when the report and recommendations um 
you know, are, are put together, especially around this, some of these needs, I think, Dorothy, that you, that you've pointed out around that we need a sense of urgency and we need rapid modification and we need targets, um, in, in order to, in order to address this and address this in a, in a timely manner. Um, so Dorothy, I'm, I'm going to say, you know, thank you so much for coming back to share what's been happening with the HMD project and, and for sharing with us uh, what you've been learning from the survey and, and from the focus group research. And to my colleague Ingrid, I'll, I'll say thanks as well for being a part of this conversation and sharing your perspective. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's, it's a privilege. Thank you. I want to say thanks for me as well, uh, Ingrid and Dorothy. And, you know, as I was listening to some of the things you were saying, I found myself at points during this conversation when you were talking about all the data you've collected and a lot of the surprises along the way. I started thinking that, you know, research projects like this are kind of like doing journalistic research. I mean, I related to that because that's the background I come from. And, you know, the more research you do, the, the better picture of things you can paint. And it sounds like there's going to be a, a, a strong picture of limited mobility disabilities in, in this country when you're when when you're all done. But I mean, sometimes, you know, with all that research, the more you'll learn, things can go in a totally unexpected direction with a piece. And sometimes, you just have to say, stop, I've got enough and time to put the story together. Or in this case, I guess it's your report to the federal government. And, you know, hopefully, you know, we share your hope. Absolutely, Dorothy, that that this report and, and the recommendations from it are going to make an impact on accessibility in this country. And, you know, we've got an aging population, we have disability on the rise, and the reality that anybody can join, you know, the world's largest minority group at any point in their lives. Um, and you can join it briefly or you can join it permanently. So accessibility is gonna to continue to be hugely important in the years ahead. And speaking about what's ahead with accessibility, uh, we hope that uh, you'll join us next month for another episode about accessibility on this podcast, and that's web accessibility and why businesses are lagging behind on it and what needs to happen to change that. So that conversation is going to be coming on July 11th. So that's it for this episode of You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D. And I'm Jeanette Campbell. And over here at the other mic, I'm Dean Askin. Thanks again for listening wherever, whenever, and on whatever podcast app you're listening from. Join us each episode as we have insightful conversations, including follow-up conversations like this one, and explore disability inclusion in business and in our communities from all the angles. You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D is produced in Toronto, Canada by the Ontario Disability Employment Network. All rights reserved. Our podcast production team, executive producer and host, Jeanette Campbell, producer, Sue Defoe, associate producer and host, Dean Askin, audio editing and production by Dean Askin. Our podcast theme is Last Summer by Ixon. If you have feedback or comments about an episode, contact us at info at odinnetwork.com. That's info at O-D-E-N-E-T-W-O-R-K.com. Join us each episode for insights from expert guests as we explore the power of inclusion, the business benefits of inclusive hiring, and why disability is an important part of the diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation. 
Listen to You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D on Podbean or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.